WBCA Radio is proud to present City Talk, where fascinating conversation is alive and well, with your host, Boston Radio veteran, Ken Meyer. The Fugitive. A QM production. Starring David Jansen as Dr. Richard Kimball. An innocent victim of blind justice, falsely convicted for the murder of his wife. Reprieved by fate when a train wreck freed him en route to the death house. Freed him to hide in lonely desperation, to change his identity, to toil at many jobs. Freed him to search for a one-armed man he saw leave the scene of the crime. Freed him to run before the relentless pursuit of the police lieutenant obsessed with his capture. And hello again, everybody. Welcome to another edition of City Talk. And we are talking with a gentleman who was able to recapture The Fugitive, uh, one of the most popular TV shows that was ever filmed. Stephen King says so, and I tend to agree with him. And the gentleman that put it all together into a great book is with us, and his name, of course, is Ed Robertson. Ed, it's nice to talk to you about recapturing the fugitive. Ken, thank you again for uh, inviting me uh, to talk to you on your program and to talk to your listeners. Now, you gave me a rather unique and pleasant experience. There was an audio book which was done on the fugitive, and it was read by Jacqueline Scott, who played Dick Kimball's sister, and also Barry Morse, who played Lieutenant Philip Gerard. Tell me about that and those two people. Well, the, the audio book edition of The Fugitive Recaptured is still available. Uh, it, it's, it's available in audio cassette form if you still have uh, audio cassettes or boom boxes. And I suspect... Um, I, I, I suspect a good part of your listeners probably still have that if they want to listen to The Fugitive cap, Recaptured on audio tape. But um, the book, uh, the print book, which is out of print, but you can still find it. Uh, the, the print book came out in the summer of 1993, about a month before the release of the Harrison Ford Movie and as you'll recall, Ken, uh, the it was it was one of those it was one of those things where everything coalesced, and um, the fugitive movie with Harrison Ford and and Tommy Lee Jones was one of the last great box office smashes that didn't have outer space and special effects and stuff like that. It was an old-fashioned, gripping drama, and Harrison Ford was at the height of his stardom at the time, uh, and it just, everything came together. It was, it was, it was like a two, it was like a two-hour roller coaster ride. There was no, there was no dead parts of the move, of, of the movie, and so, and that, um, that instigated a lot of interest in the fugitive, which my book was fortunately able to um, uh, 
uh, capture <laughs> and, 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 and all of that. And um, the, the book sold well enough that the publisher uh, thought an audio book edition uh, would be appropriate. And uh, we reached out to Barry Morse, who I spoke to several times over a three-year period, very generous with, with his time, very, very nice man, great storyteller. And uh, we asked him if he would narrate uh, the book. And we also decided, uh, because we wanted a female voice, and uh, uh, Jackie, was, Jackie was doing a lot of stage work at the time, and she was getting a lot of uh, media in the, uh, uh, in the New York press uh, in, in particular, we asked Jackie to uh, co-narrate the book with Barry. And so uh, uh, we, it's, it's, it, the, 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 the book itself is about, a, is about 200 pages. We had to um, condense it down to 90 minutes and just basically do an overview of of the entire series, all four seasons, and and in the final episode, and the pre, and the backstory of how it got on the air, and it was it was a lot of it was a great project, and um, uh, uh, Jackie and Barry were great to work with. Now I did not see the movie, so I'm speaking from total ignorance here. Did it follow the TV line pretty close? Yes and no. Um, Roy Huggins, who I also spoke to several times for the Fugitive book and later my books on Maverick and Rockford Files, Roy Huggins was the creator of the Fugitive, as you know. Uh, but in an unusual circumstance, Roy um, did not was not in a position to produce the show. Uh, um, normally. When you create a show, if you are in the uh, television business and are a producer, if you create a show, you uh, you end up producing the show because that way you can control the storyline and the tone and 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 all of that. Uh, Roy uh, was he he had actually taken a sabbatical from television for long for you know for a number of reasons. Um, but the long, but the the long and short of it was, um, he when he finally sold the show to ABC, he had to tell the president of the network, Leonard Goldenson, I'm not in a position to produce the show. Um, I've, I've I've taken the leave from television. I've actually entered the grad program at UCLA, and. Um, I, I, I'm committed to that. And so um, they, uh, they made the deal to, um, to hire Quinn Martin to produce the show. And so you had a unique, uh, you, you had a unique setting of that. And uh, you'll have to remember, I, I know I started talking about Roy Huggins, you'll forgive me, Quinn, uh, uh, Ken, I've, I've lost the thread of your question. What was your question again? Steer me back in the right direction. I, I asked you if the if the movie follows. Oh, the yes. TV yeah. Okay. Show. Thank you. Thank you. Yes and no. Okay. So Roy was still very active 
Roy followed the success of the show and um, he watched the pilot. He did not watch any of the other episodes because um, shortly after, uh, uh, about a year after he started um, grad school at UCLA, Universal Studios made him an offer that he couldn't refuse and he went back into television. And, um, uh, but he had held on to the motion picture rights of the series and I believe he held on to most of the subsidiary rights. Um, there was a novel that came out uh, briefly. It was based on the pilot. Uh, Roy got wind of that and said, uh, you can't do that. I still own the rights to that so far. So he was still very, 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 um, uh, you know, he was very, very uh, actively interested in the development of the show. So when the time came to do the movie, he made it very clear to the producers, uh, you don't want to remake the show. Um, you know, so the, the trick is to come up with the concept that is true enough to the original series that you'll get the fans of the show to watch, to go to the movies, but also... Um, make it new enough and go in enough of the direction that you'll get people who are people to go to the movies that are Harrison Ford fans or Tommy Lee Jones fans and not necessarily fans of David Jansen and the fugitive. So uh, the first half an hour of the movie more or less um, dramatizes the concept of the show um, uh, Richard Kimball wrongly accused of his wife, uh, of murdering his wife, um, sentenced to die, ran out of appeals, was on his, was, was on his, was on a bus, or in the, in the, in the TV show as a train, in the movie it was a bus, um, on his way to uh, the death house um, for, uh, to be executed. There was no call from the government, uh, from the governor forthcoming. Um, uh, and then, a, a uh, as, as as William Conrad said in the TV show, and this was also true in the movie, fate moved its huge hand. But a bus got into an accident. Richard Kimball is able to escape, and he spends the first half an hour hour looking for the one armed man, which is again that's true to the uh, to to the original series. Then about halfway, there is a twist. The movie goes in another direction. The one-armed man is sort of, um, he, the, let's, put, let's, let's put it this way. Um, the, the, finding the one-armed man drives the, drives the first half of the movie, but then uh, Richard Kimball finds that the one-armed man was a front man for somebody else, and um, and he spends the second half trying to find trying to find the the person or persons who used the one-armed man to set him up for murder. So it's so the first half of the movie is true to the original show. The second half goes in a slightly different direction, but it's still very very suspenseful, and the movie works because 
for the same reason that the TV series worked because it is an hour, it's a two, it's a two hour chase. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones trying to find Harrison Ford, Harrison Ford trying to find the people respond, responsible for the murder of his wife so that he, clear, he can clear his name and go on with his life. One of the things that frustrated me in, in listening to the audio version of this book was the fact that Goldenson was the only one that seemed to believe in the concept. And I loved it. I thought it was a great idea to do the show. And, and nobody liked it. Well, um, the, the, short, the short answer to that, Ken, is that um, there's no telling. And there, there's, I mean, t uh, uh, people have been making television shows on the network level for um, close to 75 years now. And... Um, there's no scientific um, route to what makes a successful show or not. And uh, every time someone says, I know the answer to what makes a hit, um, there'll be 10 examples that will prove them immediately wrong. And um, uh, there, you know, the, 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 the consensus among the three, and, and back then there were only the three networks, um, ABC, CBS, and, and NBC, those are the only chances to, to, to get a show on network television back in 1960, 61, 62. And the consensus among um, network people is that to make a show where the protagonist is a convicted murderer, is un-American, it's a slap in the face of the, of the judicial system, it's against law and order, and even though uh, the the concept of the show had a narrator that said very plainly, this man is innocent, therefore it's okay, American viewers, for you to root for him, even though that's all spelled out very, very, very plainly. Um, it, it, the, the concept of, of a convicted murderer being the protagonist of a show upset a lot of decision makers at the time. Uh, it, so it, it, it's very funny to say this now, you know, 70 years, uh, 60 years later, where it, we're, we're, uh, uh, we're in an era of um, anti-heroes, uh, people who are, people who are much more ethically challenged than Richard Kimball ever was. Um, but that's the way that that was the pulse of network television in at least that was the pulse of network television decision makers in 1962. And one of the reasons why Roy Huggins took a sabbatical from television was uh, he, he he ran into a, a I guess the, the the I guess you could call it a career slump. Everybody has slumps. And he had a stretch, two-year stretch, where uh, nothing he put on the air sold, or if it did sell, it didn't last more than you know uh, 13 weeks, 26 weeks. Um, the the magic touch that he had with uh, uh, Warner Brothers uh, in the late 1950s with Maverick and Cheyenne and 77 Sunset Strip. Um, uh, 
shows that were responsible for the bulk of Warner's um, television output at the time. Uh, he he was in a he was in a career slump, and and the the fact that he couldn't sell the it, it, it took the fact that he couldn't sell the Fugitive was sort of the epitome of that, and so um, that's what led him to move away from television for for a while. And then, but as we said earlier, circumstances brought him back, and certainly um, once the Fugitive became a monster hit, that also um, um, that that also solidified Roy's reputation as a as, as a creative force in television. I'm curious about something else. Um, whenever Barry Morse appeared in the television show, it was always mentioned by whoever the announcer was. When they would give the guest stars, they would always say, and Barry Morse as Lieutenant Philip Gerard. But when the one-armed man was in it, at least in the judgment, they never mentioned Bill Raish's name. Is there a reason for that? Well, my guess... Ken is Barry Morris had a better agent than Bill Raish. <laughs> now I'm, I, I don't I don't I don't mean to be flip when I say that, but um, uh, things like credit, um, uh, you know, special guest star or the um, the all important and which is the last you know uh, guest star you see in the opening credits and Barry Morse as Lieutenant Philip George, those things are usually negotiated um, by uh, between the agents and the producer. Um, and it has to do with status and so forth. And, and um, in the case of Barry Morse, uh, he was, he was doing a lot of television at the time. He was very much in demand. He did a lot of anthology shows, Twilight Zone, um, uh, The Outer Limits. But he was also very active um, on stage, both in Canada, where he was living at the time, as well as his native England. So uh, getting, you know, so, so the... And Barry Morris, I'm sure that was a that 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 was something that Barry's agent worked out with, uh, you know, Quinn Martin and the casting people. Whereas Bill Raish, and this is this is not to put down Bill Raish in any sense of the word. Bill Raish was, well, he was he he was mostly a stunt man. He did some on-screen acting. But Bill Race would be the first to tell you he was nowhere near as accomplished an actor as Barry Morse was. So it would be pretentious of, you know, uh, to, and, and Bill Race as the one our man um, at at the time, although, you know, if he had a if 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 depending on who, who, who his reputation was and. I mean, on, on, on who, who his representation was and and so forth, maybe that would have happened. But, um, uh, you know, it was, uh, Bill Bill was not, I mean, Bill, Bill, was, Bill did a good job given what he was asked to do, but, um, and we only saw the one-armed man like maybe once or twice each of the first three seasons. Um, and, he rarely, if any, had any dialogue. 
Um, the last season, uh, I think they wrote the one-armed man in like six episodes, which when you go from doing one, one episode a year to doing six in one year, that's a big jump. And um, they had, they wrote stories involving the one-armed man and the one-armed man had actual dialogue. And Raish was the first, you know, uh, in fact, Barry Morse told me that um, Raish called Barry one day and says, what do I do? I've got dialogue in this thing. You know, (laughs) I'm not an actor. Um, And Barry said, well, Bill, just do the best you can. And if you need help, you know, David and I are here to coach you and the director is here and, and so forth. So that I think is, I think that, that, I think that's the difference in billing between Barry Morse and Bill Raish. Was it, was it difficult finding a Bill Raish to play this part? Were there a lot of uh, auditions or cattle calls as it were? As I recall, no. As I recall, um, Alan Armour, uh, who produced the pilot and who produced the first 90 episodes of the Fugitive series, uh, this was 1962 when the pilot went to production, and Bill Raish had just completed. Um, uh, Lonely Are the Brave, which is one of the great films that Kirk Douglas made um, about the last vestiges of the American cowboy. And there is a scene um, in which Bill Raish and Kirk Douglas get into a fight at a bar. And Bill Raish plays a very menacing character, even though he only has one arm. Um, like, like a lot of people um, uh, who have a disability, uh, he was able to comp- uh, he was able to compensate strength in in his um, uh, stump, you know, for lack of a better word, um, that, that 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 may not have been there before when he had his full arm. So. Um, uh, and Alan Armour remembered that scene with Kirk Douglas and Bill Raish from Lonely Are the Brave. And um, phone calls were made and uh, they were able to sign Bill for the pilot. And um, whenever they decided to bring back the one-armed man in the first and second and third season as it happened, Bill was available. I, I have, you know, I haven't thought of this. I haven't thought of this in 30 years, Ken. Um, <laughs> it's possible that if Bill Raish was doing something else at the time they went into, at, at the time the series went into production and he wasn't available for a one-armed man episode, it's possible they may have looked for another one-armed man actor to to replace him i don't know um it's 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 possible that uh, he knew and his representatives knew that okay this is a unique sort of situation here maybe they secured you know they made sure that he was available who knows but um 
because and I bring this up because um, uh, before we went on the air, you you asked me a question about the Leonard Taft character. Now, Leonard Taft was uh, the fugitive's brother-in-law for people who who know the show and follow and 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 and, and are familiar with all the characters. Um, Leonard Taft was played by Richard Anderson in the final two episodes, The Judgment, but Anderson was the third of three actors to play that particular character. Um, so uh, James Sicking played it in the first season. Lynn McCarthy played it in the second season, second or third season. And then uh, Richard Anderson uh, played him in the um, in the series finale. And uh, it was it, it was not a major role like Jacqueline Scott's was. Um, uh, I mean, Leonard Taft, I think, had one scene in the first episode he was in. James Sicking played him in that episode. James Sicking was a good actor, uh, but and he he did a lot of stuff for Quinn Martin um, uh, before he became a star in his own right with Hill Street Blues, but. Um, it was it it was not a it, it it was not a major part, and so when the time came to recast uh, Leonard Taft a year or so later, maybe they I don't know if they reached out to James Sicking and uh, he wasn't available, so they went to Lynn McCarthy, or or they just decided okay. You know, anybody could play this actor or anybody could play this character. I don't I, I, I don't know that for sure. But so but the the going back to your question, there may have been a unique circumstance with Bill Raish, you know, uh, because there, there weren't there weren't a lot of actors at the time who only had one arm. So he that made him distinguished. All right. Tell me about uh, another question I just thought of. In the judgment and in the uh, second episode, they recreated the murder of Helen Kimball. Uh, did they use footage from the first, from the pilot, or did they get somebody else to play the part of Kimball's wife when she was killed by the one-armed man? Uh, well, uh, I'll answer the second question first. Yes, Diane Diane Brewster um, re reprised the role in the series finale. She had uh, 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 she she appeared in a flashback sequence in a first season episode called "Girl from Little Egypt," which laid out the backstory of the fugitive, and which some fans of the show consider the real pilot because it 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 be, it it lays out the backstory of the concept which most pilots would do whereas um the the pilot the, the actual pilot fear in a desert city with vera miles and brian keith they allude there's a scene where david jansen has a monologue and fills in some of the details that the narrator didn't mention in the opening sequence but basically it's a tip it's a quote-unquote typical episode Richard Kimball is you know you know in a strange town trying to find clues to this mysterious one-armed man who 
who we saw at the murder scene. Um, but uh, in Girl from Little Egypt, Diane Brewster played Helen. Um, and then there was an episode. Uh, she played Helen in a flashback sequence. And then about a year later, there's an episode with, Lurie, uh, 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 with Louise Sorrell and Ruth White and Lloyd Goff called The Survivors, which um, what, what, uh, the, the concept of that episode was Richard Kimball um, finds shelter in, um, in the town where his in-laws live. And Ruth White played um, uh, Richard Kimball's mother-in-law, who hasn't you know, who believes that Richard Kimball killed Helen. Louise Sorrell was Helen's sister. She believed in Richard's innocence, and I believe Lloyd Goth was Helen's father, and I believe he he believed in Richard's innocence too. Now, to answer your question, as you'll recall. By the time the fourth season went into production, Ken, the series, The Fugitive, had gone from being filmed in black and white, which was the case with the first 90 episodes, and they went into color in 1966, the beginning of the fourth and what proved to be final season, because virtually every network show was filmed in color by 1966. Um uh, because, you know, RCA was trying to sell color, you know, television sets. NBC had been the first network to really embrace color. Uh, Bonanza, I believe, Bonanza was one of the few shows of that era. Bonanza premiered in 59, if I remember correctly. That was yeah, filmed, you're right. That was filmed entirely in color. Um, uh, the Fugitive... Even the the, the the Fugitive premiered four years after Bonanza, but it was, you know, for economic reasons. And I think to a degree, stylistic reasons, um, Quinn Martin chose to film the series in black and white. But by 1966, every virtually all other shows were in color. And there and the numbers, uh, the numbers prove this. Um, ABC's. Uh, fall lineup the previous season um, struggled partially because it was it most of their shows were in black and white whereas most of these shows on the other two networks were in color so ABC by 1966 to be competitive all of their shows had to be filmed in color and that included the fugitive so um I suppose I suppose Ken, they could have used stock footage from Diane uh, Brewster's appearance in Fear, uh, uh, in Girl from Little Egypt, that the, the flashback sequence that depicted, you know, the murder scene. I suppose they could have used the black and white footage stylistically, even though the rest of the episode was in color. But um, because you know they. Uh, they brought they brought back Diane Brewster. She was available, and so the the flashback sequences that we see Diane Brewster in in part two of the Judgment those were filmed in color, as was the rest of the show at the time. Mm. Um, tell us about Bill. Did you get a chance to talk to Bill Raish, the one-armed man, at all? 
No, Bill Raish no. passed away in 1984, about seven, eight years before I started working on the book. I oh. would have needed a Ouija board to uh, to talk to Bill. Um, but <laughs> uh, uh, he, I believe, he gave an interview to a woman named Diane... I, I'm, I'm blanking on her last name. She, she and her husband used to do this is pre-internet. They did a monthly or bi-monthly newsletter um, type publication called TV Collector. Oh, I know the, I know the, yeah, Diane Albert. Diane Albert, thank you, Ken. Um, and um, in fact, I think Diane printed. The transcript of your inner one of your radio interviews with Ray Burr. If I yes, remember, she yes, yeah. she did. Yes, so, she did. So, um, Diane, God bless her. She meets. They they did they did a four part retrospective on the fugitive that came out. I'm going to say eighty. 82, 83, about a year before Bill Raish died. Uh, and um, if I remember correctly, Diane um, reached, was able to reach Bill, and Bill has some comments in that four-part um, four-part retrospective of the Fugitive, which I think is still available. I think Diane has her. Um, I think Diane still has all of her back issues available in one form or another for those. For those um, who want to learn more about nope. their about favorite shows such as The Fugitive. Yep. And knowing Diane as I do, I haven't spoken to her in years, but <laughs> I got I got a hunch you're right. Now, see if you can settle a rumor, which was the fact that The Fugitive was based on a true case in Ohio in 1954 involving... Sam Shepard, exactly. Um, I've heard that it it was not based on that, and uh, his son uh, seemed to think that it was. So, as Larry Glick used to say, "Give me the story behind the story." Well, if, if you can, um, this is what I can say. Um, there, you know, it, and and th this is this is one of the burning quote-unquote controversies regarding the fugitive and it's an ongoing debate over followers and fans of the show um as you just alluded the shepherd family still believes that the show was based on the actual shepherd murder case f lee bailey um who i believe passed away within the last year um, he maintained the show was based on the Sam Shepard case. Um, there, if you look at Roy Huggins' original treatment, not the one that was uh, not the one that was produced as part of the pilot and the backstory episode, "Girl from Little Egypt," but the but the original treatment, Roy uh, wrote that the assailant. Uh, that Kimball saw um, when he came home and to find his wife brutally beaten. 
Uh, Roy's treatment says that um, Kimball saw a quote unquote shaggy haired red, a, a, a man, a man with either shaggy hair or shaggy red hair. And if I remember correctly, the assailant in the Sam Shepard case, according to Shepard, was a shaggy haired or red haired man. So now, so that would suggest that Huggins got that from the Shepard case. The thing is, um, I interviewed Roy Huggins several times for the Fugitive Recaptured. Um, and because I also talked to him for my other two books on uh, Maverick and 45 years of the Rockford Files. Um, and Roy and I became friends over the last 10 years of his life. So we had many conversations and Roy was very consistent. Um, even, you know, the CBS version of The, of, of the Fugitive uh, was produced um, about a year before he died. And so there is, you know, so the, the Shepherd, the Shepherd connection came up in, you know, when, when CBS brought back the fugitive in 2000, 2001 to his dying day, Roy said the, they, my inspiration for produce, for creating the fugitive was a desire to uh, bring the elements of the classic Western, the itinerant stranger who comes to a strange who, who comes to town with a mysterious past um, and somehow makes the town better because of his presence. Um, that's the con that's 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 a classic American concept. That's the concept of Shane. That's the concept of pretty much that, that's the concept of Maverick. Uh, which Roy did, he turned that. In, he, I mean, he inverted that by making Maverick um, uh, a a gambler versus a stalwart hero. But you know that that that's a classic motif in in the American Western. And Roy Roy said, "I want you know because there's a, there's a lot to that classic, you know, itinerant stranger who has who doesn't have a care in the world. He can go from town to town. You know, he can sleep. He he can sleep." on the desert floor and, you know, um, go his own way without any sort of responsibility. Well, you could do that in the mythic American West, but if you put, if you put a character like that in a modern day setting, um, it would be difficult for audiences to root for him because uh, he, he would come across as a bum or a drifter or you know a beatnik, um, and the, you might uh, you you might um, you you might you might offend half of your viewing audience if 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 you go about that way. So Roy just Roy decided well the only way to bring 
that classic American Western character into a modern day setting is to make him is is to make him a man who is convicted of a capital crime, but wrongly convicted. So, um, and that that you know, so that that eliminates the he's a he's an aimless drifter part because um, he's not aimless. He's he's looking to clear his name. And because the narrator says this man is innocent, that takes away any that takes away any you know guilt or conflict about rooting for this guy. So um, so uh, the so that is that that is why. Um, but the so so Roy was Roy was very consistent in saying my inspiration for doing the fugitive was not Shepard, but the desire to bring the classic American cowboy, that classic character, into a modern day setting. So I'm, uh, even though the the Shepard family says it's based on the case, even though Shepard's lawyer, F. Lee Bailey, says it's based on the case, um, Roy Huggins was very consistent saying it was not based on the case, it was based on the desire to bring a classic American Western hero into a modern day setting. That's his story. I'm sticking with it. <laughs> now, I did not realize until I read your book that A&E re-ran The Fugitive in the 90s and still found it very successful when a lot of people knew how it ended. I also didn't know until just now that CBS... Uh, brought it back in 2000 and 2001, which I didn't think they could do because you, I, I don't think you can duplicate an original success. And I gather they did not. And I only say that because I never knew about it. Well, um, there have been variations of The Fugitive in the 50, 60 years since the original, since, since the David Jansen series went off the air. Um, a, uh, I mean, and there, there were variations of the fugitive before the fugitive. I mean, the, 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 the basic concept is also straight out of Les Miserables, you know, by Victor Hugo, um, a man, a man wrongfully accused of a crime is relentlessly pursued by a detective who wants to bring him back to justice. And Roy Huggins alludes to Les Miserables in his concept for the fugitive. Um, uh, but the, and so, and so even though, uh, you know, the, 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 the concept of a wrongly accused man or woman trying to clear his name while evading pursuit by the police. That's been done many times. It's been done many times in Quinn Martin episodes, you know, of other Quinn Martin series. Um, and uh, David Jansen did it um, at least on two occasions. There was a movie he did uh, about a year after The Fugitive called Warning Shot where he plays a uh, Los Angeles uh, police officer who uh, uh, confronts a, uh, a suspect um, in 
uh, on, on a dark night, fires a warning shot, man is killed, but uh, because of circumstances, um, the police officer played by David Jansen is, is, is accused of murdering the suspect. And so he has to, he has, he, um, he is suspended from the police department and he has to clear his name. So he's not pursued by the police, but he's wrongfully accused of, 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 of murdering this person. And he has to, he has to prove that there's more to the story than the, than, than meets the yacht. So it's been done many, many times before, Ken. Uh, the trick with the fugitive was not so much that everyone knew the ending. The success, the success, the success of the show in reruns proved that, you know, you can know the ending of the story and and still revisit it every week. That's why people watch the fugitive. The, the trick was by the time they decided to bring back the show in 2000, um, the world was much different than it was in 1962. It was the beginning of the internet era. Uh, it was the beginning of, it was very much the beginning of the computer era. And so it would be a lot more, and, and it was also the era of cable television. It would be a lot more difficult for Richard Kimball to, um, to evade the law to the extent he did for four years in, 19, in the 1960s, it would be a lot more difficult to do that in the early 2000s. That was part of the challenge the, sh uh, uh, the, the CBS show with Tim Daly um, had, to, had, had, had to achieve. But they also, they, they also didn't try, they also didn't try to do the David Jansen series over again. There are some basic motifs but it was more or less a variation of the Harrison Ford movie where Gerard is not a police, police lieutenant, a lone wolf police lieutenant from a small town in Indiana. He was, um, he was a federal agent as he, as he was in the movie. So in that respect, it was an attempt to redo the movie as a weekly series. Um, still the, it, the budget was, there was a huge budget for the uh, CBS series in 2000. It got a lot of press. The pilot was considered the best pilot of the year. Um, the, the consensus among critics and experts is that um, CBS had a winner in redoing The Fugitive. Um, they're going to... Uh, uh, th this is going to be the breakaway hit of the year. And even though now the pilot got a, it, it got a big audience um, the first week, but what happened was, and I'm trying to remember what it was up against on ABC. I think it was up against the TGIF lineup at the time, which was still very, very strong. Um, the, what happened was um, the, after the pilot, um, the fugitive viewership in the in the viewership uh, for the fugitive on CBS dropped off over subsequent weeks, but it picked up at nine o'clock when CSI was on. Ooh. So, and the consensus was the fugitive was going to be the show that carried CBS on Friday nights. As it happened, it was CSI who turned out to be the sleeper of the year, 
And the fugitive was, the fugitive came and went within, you know, one year. And CSI with Bill Peterson ran for 10 years and it spawned um, two other franchises uh, and was one of the most successful series ever. So it, it goes to show, it goes back to something we said earlier. People are making television shows for 60, 70 years, Ken. And every time you think you know something's going to be a hit, it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody always wonders why a show is stopped and ended. And in reading your book, it's, it sounds like it was Jansen who decided that the show should end because he was just exhausted. Um, and I gather that ABC had wanted to do a fifth season, but Jansen said, uh-uh. Yeah, my, my understanding is um, the, the numbers were good enough. I mean, the, the numbers for the fourth year were good enough that ABC wanted to continue. Um, and, uh, but it was the, it would be difficult to make a show like The Fugitive today. The CBS series tried this because it was basically a one lead show. You have an actor who is in virtually every scene. And if he's not on camera, he's being talked about. So, um, and whereas it's, you, you may have a star of a show today, Ken, mm -hmm. but that star will be surrounded by an ensemble cast who will pick up some of the heavy lifting so that the star is not on camera 90% of the time. That's a big burden to have. And especially in the case of The Fugitive, which was an action oriented. I mean, it was, it, it had a lot of moments of interpersonal drama, but because there was the chase element always in the background, Richard Kimball was doing a lot of diving and jumping out of cars and rolling onto the floor. And even though he may have had, he may have had stunt people to do some of the long shots of that, that's, you know, the, the physical toll of just being on the set 90% of the time and having all the pressure of the show on your shoulders, that takes its toll. Plus, um, plus the, uh, there was, they were making 30 shows a year at the time. That's a lot. It, that, that's a lot of shows. It takes six years. It took six days, six working days to film a 60 minute show. So that's six months of the year where, you know, you're on, you're, 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 you're on camera and, and doing a lot of physical stuff and, and all of that. It's, it's, it's where it, it will wear, it, it will wear you out. It is a grind. You know, Raymond Burr was able to escape that grind to a degree because um, even though Perry, Raymond Burr was the driving force of Perry Mason, Raymond, for, Raymond Burr also had Bill Tallman, um, to help with some of the heavy lifting. He had, uh, who played Paul? Um, William Bill Hopper. Hopper. He, he had Bill Hopper. Bill Hopper was usually good for at least one or two scenes where uh, Paul Drake is doing some of the, um, uh, some of the legwork. 
And of course, you know, and I think we talked about this uh, when I visited you last time, talk about Perry Mason, Ken. The great thing about Perry Mason was that it was basically a game show. You had five suspects, each of the five suspects, they had, you know, like the first five, seven minutes of his episode, um, you would you would meet the five suspects each week. And then the murder would happen. And then we'd see Perry. Yeah. You know? um, so Perry, a lot of times Perry wouldn't we wouldn't see Perry until seven, eight minutes into the episode, whereas Richard Kimball, he was on virtually, yeah. virtually every page, every minute of, of the screen. So um, and. And um, even though the both Quinn, Martin, and ABC tried to get David Jansen to change his mind, he said, no, don't want to do this anymore. And David Jansen was also, and this is very much typical of actors of that era, um, a, having a successful television show was still considered like a step down if you wanted to be a film actor, you wanted to be a movie star. And David Jansen, in his mind's eye, he wanted to be, he wanted to conquer film. And so he wanted to, um, he wanted to take advantage of the Q factor he, he got from The Fugitive and try to parlay that into a movie career. Unfortunately, while he made some movies in the late 1960s, um, the he made such an indelible impression with the fugitive that he was that uh, the movie audiences never accepted him as a star, um, and and again that's you know some people some actors were able to make that transition. Clint Eastwood most famous made the transition from television star to movie actor. Um, uh, you know there's and a lot of it's timing, a lot of it's kismet, a lot of it's material, a lot of it's there are a lot of variables in, in that they go on to play, but uh, the, 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 the desire for David Jansen to become, to pursue a movie career was also a factor in him quitting the show. He also died very young. Yeah. Um, he, uh, he had a lot of health problems. He, he, this is, this is not, I mean, it's, it's public knowledge. Uh, he drank a lot. Um, and uh, so he had, you know, he, he, he had, he had liver problems and, uh, um, you know, I, I believe, I think he also smoked, you yep. know, so that, uh, um, and he, he, he worked very hard and he lived very hard and, um, uh, and he died young and, I don't know whether A led to B, but um, you know the fact remains Jansen died before he was fifty. All right, uh, we only have a couple of minutes left, but uh, you a very short synopsis, if you will, on your latest book on the FBI, which I know I want to talk about when that comes out. Okay, well, the FBI, it's going, to, it's going to be called the FBI Dossier. It's a behind-the-scenes look at all nine seasons of the uh, uh, Quinn Martin-produced uh, series about the FBI starred Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. Um, it's, it is similar. 
it, it will be similar to my book, The Fugitive, um, in that uh, it lays out this, the, the backstory of how the show got on the air, uh, public reception of the show, um, the show's influence on other TV series, plus a lot of um, interviews with actors and some other behind the scenes personnel who worked on the show, um, including, I, I did talk to Ephraim Zimlis about um, two or three years before he died. So I have some direct interviews with Ephraim Zimbalist. There's also a lot of archival interviews. Um, I, uh, I spoke to William Reynolds who played um, uh, uh, Ephraim's sidekick for six of the nine years of the FBI. Bill Reynolds has a lot of memories and uh, there's also a lot of anecdotes and memories of from many of the guest stars who appeared on the FBI. So it's the FBI dossier. If all goes well, that book will be available before the end of 2022. Well, listen, please call me when it, when it and you are available. You are, uh, you are always a delight to have on. As the old saying goes, you are an interviewer's dream. And, and I love it. I just love sitting here talking to you. I could talk to you for hours. I could, I could spend three days with you and it would, it would be wonderful. <laughs> well, I, I, I always enjoy our conversations on and off the air, Ken. And I thank you again for inviting me to um, uh, talk about the fugitive with you and your listeners. Oh, and I forgot one of the things that I loved is Bill Conrad as an as the narrator. Nobody could top that. Yes, yes, and um, uh, he he really. He really set the tone um, yeah. for the series, much the same way uh, that Walter Winchell set the tone. Um, uh, the Untouchables, uh, the, the, the show that put Quinn Martin on the map. Yep. And to some degree, um, uh, Marvin Miller achieved the same effect when he narrated the FBI. Yep. And he was also in The Millionaire. That's right. Marvin Miller was on The Millionaire. Yep. Great show. One of the reasons he went into voice art, he went into voice acting or went back to voice acting, I should say, was he found himself typecast. Um, the, the Million, and this happens a lot, The Millionaire was such a, a successful show. Um, Marvin Miller, you know, he found himself getting offers to play basically the same character he played on the millionaire and he wanted to do uh, other things. And, and um, uh, while Marvin Miller was not exactly a dashing looking man physically, he had a great voice and you know, this Ken, if you have a great voice and you can do inflections and narrations and stuff like that, you can make a very good living in voiceover <laughs> because nobody cares what you look like. Right. It, with, right. voice, with, with voice acting. Right. Well, uh, I had a chance to meet Marvin Miller in 1975 and have also, of course, heard him on the old radio show, The Whistler. Mm -hmm. And I, I, like I said, I could talk to you for hours, but I thank you so much for coming back. And uh, we'll definitely have to do the, uh, the book on the FBI. We will. And thank you, Ken. You bet. And that'll do it for this edition of City Talk. Thanks for listening to another great conversation with Ken Meyer and friends. You can contact Ken by email. 
The address is kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. That's kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. Tune in next time for more conversation with Ken Meyer on City Talk.